Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Christine Cocciola, a licensed clinical social worker and a tenured professor at a Connecticut community college, teaching in the pre-social work program for over 18 years. Christine began her career in social work as a certified domestic violence sexual assault counselor for Safe Haven of Greater Waterbury at the age of 19, where she remains a volunteer today. She is currently a doctoral candidate in clinical social work at NYU studying coercive control. We speak with Christine today about her research on coercive control, the impact that this abuse has on adult and child victims, and the advocacy and systems reform that she supports in order to generate greater accountability for abuse. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Terry. So our conversation follows El Camijeras on course of control and specifically the work that she's doing to amplify the story of animated documentary Jennifer 42. We also talked about Jennifer's Law that's currently under consideration in Connecticut. And I understand that you've been active in that advocacy as well. But I'm curious, given your experience as a clinician first, how you became interested in advocacy, because I have to say, as you know, a survivor and someone who has interacted with many social workers and people in the system, nobody gets it. So how did you become someone who gets it? Oh, okay. So it's a really interesting story. So I began this work, as you said, at the age of 19, and I actually worked for the Department of Children and Families. Um, One of my first real full-time jobs was at the Department of Children and Families, and I realized so many of the cases had a common denominator, and it was intimate partner violence. That's what was happening constantly, and the inability for victims to leave the abusive situation was, I just was floored and couldn't believe it. But Fast forward, I began teaching social work and I teach on the power and control wheel every single semester and have a couple of days of conversations about domestic abuse. And I like to call it domestic abuse because I feel like we are always coming from the violent incident model. And really, this is sometimes a hidden abuse that a lot of people don't see. And I guess that that's how I would say I became more, I was always an advocate. I had in October domestic violence awareness month at my college that I teach at sexual assault awareness in April. I was always doing this social justice kind of stuff. Didn't realize that I was actually a victim of it. And I think for me as an educator, as a person who's been working in social justice my entire life, to not see it actually happening to me, I feel like if I couldn't see it, then we know how difficult it is for others to see it. And I'm not trying to say I'm smarter. I'm actually, I actually wasn't smarter. That's the point. I didn't see it. So I certainly began to see clients and to learn more and more about this and then decided to go on for my degree and actually do research on what coercive control looks like in relationships. So I know I've had 
I don't know, I wouldn't say maybe a gazillion, (laughs) that seems like a hyperbole, but we've had numerous episodes where we've dealt with the topic of coercive control on this podcast. And I just want to give you an opportunity to redefine it at this moment, how you define it. So we're, you know, using the same language or framework for understanding our conversation. Absolutely. So coercive control is most often a non-physical or starts as a non-physical abuse. It is the foundation, the interesting part about coercive control that we haven't really acknowledged as a society. It is the foundation of most domestic abuse. Unfortunately, the problem is, is that when a homicide occurs or a filicide, a murder of a child, and we call that, by the way, revenge filicide. There are four reasons why children are murdered. I won't go into all of them, but one of them is revenge. And it's when the offender has lost control of the, of the primary victim, the adult victim, and then takes it out on the children. But back to your point, I think that coercive is the foundation. There is such thing as situational violence. Michael Johnson researched it and it is violence between couples and it occurs and it's horrible and horrifying and could lead to hospitalization. But coercive control is a psychological abuse, manipulation, um, legal abuse, financial abuse. It is sexual abuse sometimes, and it is intimate terrorism is how Evan Stark defines it. It is literally, um, and I love this quote from him, it's control in the context of control, like being unable to move because you have to control yourself because you are being so controlled. That's how I would define it. Evan also refers to it as a gendered liberty crime. I want to give you an opportunity to address how is it gendered? I think what we need to begin thinking about is that we live in a society where historically there is, people call it a bad word, but there's patriarchy. We live in a society where we have embraced men being in positions of power. And, you know, this is not I mean, I have a wonderful son who's a man and he is not like this. This is not every man, but we have structural issues related to patriarchy and ideological issues related to patriarchy. And if we don't start looking at those things, then we're never going to really understand the oppression of women because there is already a structure set up. There is already ideology set up so that women are considered to be in a place that is less than a man. And until we actually embrace that and say, okay, this is an issue. And I know the men's rights activists have a hard time with this. And that what what they're pointing out is that, yeah, sure, there are men who are treated unfairly maybe in the legal system, but that is in no way in comparison to the way that women have been mistreated historically and consistently as it's a repetitive abuse of women. So Evan... Evan's advising you on your doctoral degree in social work. And what I've most remember from the way he defines course of control is that it's mostly, like you said, mostly enacted by men Mm -hmm. towards women in order for these perpetrators to secure their male privilege, you know, under patriarchy and how it reinforces gender inequalities. And so we talked before our interview about gender and race and some of the comparisons. I can't let you say MRA without addressing it because language is so important. And so I just want to address that there are people in the masculinity movement 
who study masculinity, who are feminists, who I support, and I recognize that their approach to what we call these people is really important to changing the framework and the lens. And so rather than calling them men's rights activists, they're the gender equivalent of white supremacists. We should call them male supremacists because to say that they're men's rights activists Mm -hmm. creates a false equivalence as if men are being oppressed. I love that you just said that. I love that. So, so these are things that, so I, I'm going to go back to a little bit about being a survivor. And so part of being a survivor is always walking a line about what is considered too much, or if you're pushing the boundary a little bit too much. And I continue to find myself in that space sometimes where I might be really uncomfortable with something. Sandra, I think her name is Sandra Brown. She did an amazing study at Rutgers University where she interviewed 600 victims and they took the Enneagram test, personality test. The idea that victims have a high agreeableness and a high conscientiousness. And I I find myself always in this space of not wanting to offend someone. And I really appreciate that just now you, you took that and you reframed it in an appropriate way because I get anxious about that sometimes. And I think that that's part of not feeling my feeling empowered enough in as a woman and as um as a victim as a woman as a like so many things i also want to say it's not you it's not just you mm-hmm. you're part of a system where everybody is complicit in erasing and or hiding gender inequality and violence against women and so the fact that anti-racism is I mean, I don't know that it's normalized, but it's certainly culturally been accepted as something that is good to strive for. It's stigmatized to be a racist. (laughs) Nobody, you know, there's one word in the English vocabulary that you cannot say the N word, Mm -hmm. but all of the epithets against women, none of them are, are unspeakable. Right. And so when I saw so Michael Flood is one of the masculinity experts, right? Yes, yes. One who said, not only should we be talking about male supremacists, but we should also be talking about father supremacists. It's not about father's rights because the rights that are the, the laws that are on the table and the impact in the courts are actually, if you look at the 3%, right, that mm-hmm. are actually going to trial the majority of them are abuse cases. And the 97% that are settled on their own, those, we don't know if they have abuse allegations, but they're settled. And so there's some level of cooperation, let's just say, Mm -hmm. let's just say, use that word or reasonableness. And if you're in a situation where people are using our very litigious legal system and the legal system we all know is based on who has more money, therefore who has more power and influence, then it's another form of power and control. So I I just want to say that, you know, it's not you. I understand that. No, but I appreciate, again, that I'm still someplace on a line sometimes. It's hard for me to be as um, assertive about my beliefs because I have this, the, so it's that control, like that fear. So victims or when you're in that relationship and you're trying to survive, you know, you can't really show emotion the way that you would normally show it. You know that you can't ask for something the way and that 
creates a place of a need for growth for sure. And uh, something I try to help my own clients with. It's okay to express yourself. It's okay to have a belief. It's okay to be angry. (laughs) It's okay. Whereas, and as you know, we can talk about that whole, that's a whole nother rabbit hole about how women are not allowed to express their emotions. Right. And and if you do in court, which I'm sure Joan, you know, Joan Meyer would affirm, right, is this idea that if you do in court, you're seen as crazy or um, something's wrong with you. Right. And, you know, we had a whole, in 2018, we had a whole slew of books, feminist books on rage and anger. So Rage Becomes Her, you know, by Soraya Chamali is a great book that has a whole section on the manifestations, uh, sexist manifestations of showing your anger in different settings, including in the courtroom. And so it's this damned if you do, damned if you don't. Let's just talk about this a little bit, the sexism as a basically root cause that no one is actually naming, <laughs> which why is there police brutality? Racism. No one's saying why are rape kits not being processed? Sexism. No one's yes. saying that the reason for that is sexism. Right. You know, why are police not believing women who are victims of domestic violence? Sexism. <laughs> so I think we need to name it because what's happening is I think so. And again, you know, this is for the listeners who've been following along. Thank you so much. But for people who are new to learning about this issue, it's really important that you're aware what is happening, what are the movements and the trends that are happening that are impacting victims of domestic violence who are disproportionately women. So one of these trends is, let's talk about using terms, actually even just focusing on the abuser at all when it comes to treating a survivor. And that may include providing alternatives to incarceration, which there is no incarceration for DV to begin with. Mm -hmm. Let's just start there. So why are we having alternatives to incarceration if we've never actually tried incarceration? Mm -hmm. So let's start there with that question. When you were volunteering for all these years, since you were 19, how many people actually went to jail and stayed in jail for the crimes they committed? So um, none, (laughs) none. And what's interesting is um, one of my first cases that I responded to, which was a sexual assault, was um, Jane Doe No More. And it was a famous case in the city of Waterbury. And she wasn't believed for 10 years. The police actually said that she was having an affair on her husband and that she said that she was raped in her house. Um, She was tied up and raped while her children were asleep. And she wasn't believed. And 10 years later, they caught a man and they got the DNA and they were able to prove that it was her husband's best friend from second grade. And he knew that the husband was going away. So she started the Jane Doe No More Foundation. And it's because no one believed her. So this happens so much. I mean, you you mentioned unbelievable when you were on the podcast with Elle. I mean, that's another great example. There's another Netflix uh, show out right now about a woman dealing with domestic violence and how the police didn't respond and didn't believe. And this is the norm. There's the so many. I mean, what's shocking, but not surprising to me again and again, almost every moment of every day is just how prevalent what you said is and mm-hmm. how there's just so few people who care and who are outraged. We're not outraged. How are we not outraged? Because <sighs> people don't care about women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, that's mm-hmm. what I think, mm-hmm. including women. Mm-hmm. Women don't care about women themselves. That, but is that, is that, again, the oppression, the inability to have a voice? You know, how many victims do you know who actually 
claim that they were victims. And I, you use the word survivor. Sometimes I use the word victim because frankly, I feel I was victimized. And I feel like I know Elle also talked a little bit about how that's an appropriate term sometimes, but how often do victims talk about it? Let's great that you're talking about language. So yes, I definitely, I have that dual identity, victim and survivor, because my victimization is ongoing and mm-hmm. it will continue to be ongoing until my abuser dies. And I know that because he is someone who cannot let go Mm -hmm. and we share a child. So he will continue to exert his power and control through our child over me and over me directly through the system. And so to that extent, I am being victimized. But the reason I use survivor is because I'm still living (laughs) and I haven't gone off the deep end. You know, I'm still lucid. I still Mm -hmm. have critical thinking skills. I have Mm self-regulation and I'm using this experience to change the system. But I totally use the word victim, you know, in other settings, because in those settings, those incidents, he is victimizing and therefore the person is a victim. Absolutely. No. And that makes perfect sense. It really does. And maybe survivorship is this ability to see outside of that, that, you know, you're a victim. And you can see that context, but you're also able to come out of it and look down on, again, that that person who has been so victimized, you're able to look down on it and be a part of it, separate from it and advocate as you're doing. So, you know, when we were talking, you know, I said just now, a lot of women don't care about themselves. And you had said earlier in the conversation, you didn't have that lens of sort of that consciousness of Mm -hmm. your own experience. So to the extent that women don't have that consciousness in advocacy settings, at least Mm -hmm. just putting aside my own experience with the system in Mm -hmm. advocacy settings where people who work for domestic violence agencies supposedly Mm -hmm. understand power and control and they use the power and control wheel in psychosocial education with their survivor groups, they somehow still don't get it. And so what's your explanation for that? What are your thoughts around that? (laughs) Okay, so I would say that, so, you know, in Connecticut, I've been trying to support Jennifer's law, Jennifer's apostrophe after the accent after the last S for all the Jennifers. And I actually wrote an op-ed that was published and it was called, Do Legislators Have Cognitive Dissonance? Because that's exactly what's going on is there is a denial that this is actually as horrible as it is. There is a denial of it. And even when presented with a horrible case like Jennifer Magnano and Jennifer Doulis, even when given those horrific situations, it's taken, Kyra's law is in New York right now. It's taken two years to still get this law passed. And how is that even the case? As you said, if this were happening to men, could you imagine if this were all happening to men and not to women, what shifts would be occurring and how quickly they would be occurring? So there's a cognitive dissonance. I had cognitive dissonance. I didn't want to believe my relationship was bad, but people don't want to even talk about this. This is the elephant in the room. We're not going to talk about it. And they certainly don't want to believe that it's as bad as it is. And as horrifying as it is, and maybe there's something way that the victim's complicit in it. And how did she not know? Susan Weitzman writes an amazing book. It's called Not to People Like Us. And this book details how this is not a socioeconomic problem. This is not a race problem. This is not an ethnicity problem. This is a gender problem. This is a problem 
of woman. And there is such a cutoff. And, 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 and if I might just say that part of my research is this idea of a loss of autonomy. I had great self-worth. I had the successful career. I am in, I had a wonderful family. I had so many wonderful things going for me, but I lost my ability to make decisions on my own. I lost my autonomy in my home. And until we begin to really see that there are no, it impacts everyone and it's significant and how much it's impacting children is my focus. Like, you know, when children watch this happening, hear it happening, or it starts happening to them because of the domestic abuse by proxy, they're the proxies that are being used by the abuser over and over and over again. How could we not? I have no words, to be honest. (laughs) So I was thinking, I mean, of course, this is just all brainstorming. So there is Mm -hmm. no way to validate if any of these theories are true. But back to racism. Racism is, I think, has gotten to a point where it's culturally unacceptable, even for white supremacists to admit (laughs) they're racist. Mm -hmm. Um, They they, they try to like, you know, use other terms to describe their positions and beliefs. And so if you look at it from like a pure numbers perspective, where I think 20% of the world population is white. And I think, I can't remember, 10%, 20% of the population is black. It's one of those. Mm-hmm. And then the rest is like the rest right. of the world, Asian, mm-hmm. Middle Eastern, et cetera, African. I mean, not African, Asian. Because mm-hmm. there's so many, so many people in Asia. Right. <laughs> so from that perspective, like the minority is trying to oppress a minority. And the people who are directly impacted by racism, the, the narrative, at least in the US, is predominantly, you know, we care because of the history of slavery, Black people. But from a numbers perspective, that seems more palatable, like the victims, there's fewer victims, whereas with women, we're half of the population of the world. So in order for us to accept that there's this much sexism, it's so pervasive, it maybe is is just too much for us, too, too difficult for us to change. And so that's where the cognitive dissonance comes in. I mean, does that? I think that does. I think it's such a, a battle. And I mean, again, like what battles are, have women really won? I mean, we have, we had Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. You know, we have, we have 114 women in Congress right now who are in Congress and we have 539 Congress people. So there is significant differences there. It's a a disparity, a huge disparity. And speaking of that number, by the way, I think women are the largest minority group that actually is unaware of their own oppression, because not all those women are Democrats. True. And so like with Black people, the majority of them, I would say, and I've said this again and again on the podcast, I think most people, most Black people would recognize there's systemic racism, that racism exists. But if you ask women, they like to pretend that sexism doesn't exist. And so to be anti-sexist is to be a feminist. And not Mm -hmm. everyone embraces the term feminist. So if you're not a feminist, that means you don't recognize systemic sexism or you don't care about it enough to embrace that identity. No, I think you're right. Yeah. And and so is that because of the long-standing coercive control that we have seen systemically 
you know, the structural and the ideological systemic, the, all of these issues um, of coercive control, power over, call it power over right, in, in relationships. And so in relationships that are more macro, the meso, and then the micro relationships, you know, so. I so agree. And I think blinders on. I think what you just said is the key point to everything, which is something that I think I hope actually can be part of what we as advocates are doing in this community is to recognize that coercive control exists everywhere as part of patriarchy. And because it exists everywhere, white over black, men over women, able-bodied over those with disabilities, et cetera, et cetera, and certainly in the capitalistic system, that there's this extractive nature of course of control where you are being used and thrown away, not seen at your viewed as chattel like women originally were and still are, especially when you look at reproductive, the, the status of reproductive rights in this country. It's like we're in this bubble where it's just part of our daily lives that to see it specifically enacted in interpersonal relations doesn't seem like such a big deal because everybody experiences it anyway. Everybody experiences it anyway. Mm -hmm. And so let's get into some of the the sort of impacts of it, since that's your area of expertise, right? I think society recognizes that microaggressions is harmful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so people who are people of color, Black people, when they experience racist microaggressions, it's aggregated and it has harmful physiological impacts, mental and psychological impacts, et cetera. What is the impact of the the microaggressions of basically coercive control on women and children in your clinical work? Yeah. So what we know now is that actually coercive control versus, and I'm not, again, not minimizing physical violence, but what we know is that PTSD, the complex PTSD of being psychologically manipulated for such an extended period of time actually is much more significant than it is for the unfortunate physical violence that might be occurring. Again, most physical violence starts off as course of control also. So let's keep that in mind. And actually the physical violence tends to be the last, can be often the last act of the offender or the perpetrator. So what I am particularly interested in is children, because what are we seeing with children who are in these environments? And what we know is that they have an inability to self-regulate, that they are suffering the PTSD just as the adult victim is, that they have low self-worth, anxiety and depression are all manifesting themselves. um, And they're coming out in behavioral issues. So I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Folletti's at all you know, the ACEs study, what we know is domestic abuse and child abuse are significant adverse childhood experiences, yet we're not doing anything to stop this domestic abuse and this child abuse, because that's exactly what it is. It's an, it's an abuse of a child. And a step further that I think is my particular interest is, is this idea of gaslighting. Like literally when you said, you know, we see this in all parts of society, isn't that what we have been doing for hundreds of years with people of color, gaslighting them into thinking that they had to follow certain rules or they could not behave a certain way or they couldn't express themselves. The same, we have been gaslighting groups of people for so long. And in that 
experience for children when they are told that their mother is a bad person or they're, you know, they're told that um, they can't trust their mother or you don't like her. Why would you like her? The impact of that on the developing brain is just, it's just reprehensible what these abusers are willing to do to a child and that it's, and that we're not doing anything to prevent it either, by the way. We're having parents who are getting custody or getting, um, you know, we have a huge group of people who are looking for 50-50 rules on shared custody. If I was abused by someone, why would they ever have the right to automatically have visitation with my child? That doesn't make any sense. Well, the sexism with regard to, this goes back to bodily autonomy. So reproductive rights, I like to say, it's not just about what you do when you're pregnant, but what you get to do once you have your child as a parent. So women who choose to have their child should be able to parent. That's a part of reproductive rights. Mm -hmm. And they should be able to parent safely. And so to the extent that, you know, we have laws in our books still where rapists can sue for custody, of Mm -hmm. course, of course, then what? Why is it surprising that we have family courts giving custody to abusers? Because they allow rapists to even have the standing. They, the fact that those laws allow rapists to sue for custody is just reprehensible. So that says it all. It does say it all. But it goes back to this conversation about patriarchy to me, because most of our judges are men who have been schooled in sexist behaviors and our lawyers, many are men or women who are not fully engaged. They have the cognitive dissonance and the experiences. I mean, this is, it's problematic that we have, we need more female people in Congress to change policies and to change laws. We need more feminists. (laughs) I'm going to say that. We don't need all women because I don't trust women unless they're feminists. I'm very clear about that. You can have your Sarah Huckabee Sanders is yeah. not someone I would want to be making decisions for me or Kristen Nielsen, you mm-hmm. know, Kristen Nielsen, our former secretary of Homeland Security, who was separating mothers and children at the border. So most of the people in my personal case have been women. Mm-hmm. So there have been female judges, female referees, and they've all been just as ignorant or continue to be just as ignorant about abuse about, you know, everything, really. So no point well taken. Absolutely. So people who actually believe in the experiences of victims. And I would also qualify too the experience of victims in the context of a system that systemically discriminates against female victims, because men are calling themselves victims a lot of them who are abusers and using the system, weaponizing the system. Like I'm sure you've heard this, lots of domestic violence agencies are getting calls from men saying they're the ones who are the victim of violent incident models. But if it's a response to defensive behaviors on the part of a female victim in response to course of control, then that's not appropriately identifying who the perpetrator is. Exactly. So in terms of, you know, what you were saying in terms of ACEs and the impact on children, 
I mean, I don't even know what to say. I'm trying to think what to say because I feel like no no one cares about children in well, this society, I, right? That's absolutely. That's, I, I'll go back to the Department of Children and Families, my time there, and that they, we have all of these children who are, you know, victims of abuse and we have perpetrators. I mean, sexual abuse. I can't even tell you how often these offenders, you know, are oftentimes. So this is an example of moms who end up choosing the offender, the perpetrator over the child because she's financially dependent on him or because she she has no self-worth or because there's just, that's coercive control. Yes. And it's also internalized sexism. The part where people don't realize that we only give value as a society to women based on their marital status, their relationship status. And if they're seen as not in a relationship, they're seen as less worthy of love. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to mention the ACEs because it makes me think about like, if we knew that if we could prevent a child from being abused, that we would prevent that child. By the way, so this is this is um, an, an area that I'm particularly interested in, is how do we help the children who have experienced this coercive control in that familial system? Because what we know is that when children are controlled in that way, sometimes the manifestations of their behavior actually can be like their pawn, like the offender. Okay. So they, and the question becomes if their ego has not been strengthened in a positive way, they now have that weak ego, the same weak ego that the characterologically compromised person has. And so if that child has an ACE from domestic abuse and from this child abuse, and then doesn't have a protective parent who is able to provide unconditional positive regard and able to intervene and support that child in a way that enhances their ego, we are now setting ourselves up to have another abuser. Yes, exactly. And that's what people don't seem to care about. And I think, especially in the media, when it comes to all these cases of mass shootings or, you know, I mean, there's just one that happened think today, I just retweeted about it in in Colorado again. The fact that everybody who's on the gun reform bandwagon think that gun reform, which is a manifestation, a symptom of sexism, Mm -hmm. because it's a patriarchal manifestation of power and control, they think that gun reform is sufficient to reduce the violence when I keep saying you can take away someone's guns, but doesn't address their desire to commit violence against someone. They can use anything. Any implement can be turned into a weapon. Just today, six people were shot and killed at a Colorado birthday party where allegedly the gunman who committed suicide was the boyfriend of one of the female victims. And so what the problem is, is nobody's going to call that, by the way, domestic abuse. They're going to say boyfriend killed, but we're not calling it what it actually is. It is domestic abuse. We don't identify those crimes that are part of a post-separation abuse. We don't identify them as such. And that's problematic too. That's a systemic problem. How could we not be identifying what it actually is? The more we focus and highlight what it really is, Hypothetically, if we were to identify it, because other countries like Britain is trying to um, make sexism and misogyny a hate crime, if we were to make sex a category that is just as much protected as race as a hate crime, Mm -hmm. everybody would be guilty of it. And so 
then that shows how pervasive it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Getting back to the impact conversation with children, um, I mean, I can tell you from my own experience, the whole spectrum of victimization of children, you know, there are those who have a consciousness of what they experience and they speak out about it. Mm-hmm. And put most likely will be retaliated against. Mm-hmm. Then those who are on the other side who identify or maybe are trauma bonded with their abuser. Yes. And potentially, you know, and I've seen this even with people who are children who are have a consciousness of who the perpetrator is, the appropriate perpetrator, they still are angry and blame the victim. Yeah. And they engage in behaviors that blame the victim. Sure. So it's a projection of their anger. They don't, so the, the victim becomes the safe person to project that anger onto because the victim is going to love them no matter what, hopefully, right? The protective parent is hopefully doing a really good job. But I, this is something that, you know, I have a couple of clients right now dealing with where their children are literally mini offenders. And I have one client, her son is 15 and he is behaving just like the husband she just divorced. And the triggers and how is she supposed to remain stable and not be reactive? We call that reactive abuse, right? Not be reactive to him when he keeps harming her over and over and over again. And she has already been so harmed by the perpetrator. And then it's just, it's so difficult to be strong in that, in that space, especially when no one else gets it, by the way, if you have not experienced this and there's such a spectrum of reactions by children or manifestations of the behavior by children that when you haven't experienced it, you can't believe it. It's like no one can believe the coercive control. That's one thing. But then for someone to say, oh, my son is doing this and my son is doing, he's calling me the C word when he's angry with me. What? Like, how come you can't get your son to stop saying that? And people don't understand that these kids are are so, I don't want to say damaged. But they are so compromised. They're very wounded and compromised in their egos. If this mom doesn't work really diligently with me on helping him repair, he may in fact be his father at some point. I mean, that's the fear of, I think, every woman who has a son to be triggered by behaviors that are replicating, you know, how you were treated by your abuser. And yet there are clinicians who say you also have part of your healing and therapy is recognizing that your child is not your abuser, that they Mm -hmm. still have their own growth pathway and trajectory, Mm -hmm. and that you still have the ability to influence that. Absolutely. What are some ways that protective parents, protective mothers in particular, can positively influence the development of their sons. Okay, we'll start with sons because I do have a client who has a daughter who is very much abusive to the victim, the mother. But um, yeah, so most important is to unconditional positive regard all of the time. And so, you know, children oftentimes need corrections, right? But if you have a vulnerable ego, Even if I tell you that you left your earrings on the counter, or if we're talking about a boy, even if I tell you that you left your bat outside um, and it should come in because it's going to rain, you're going to take that in a very attack way. You're always feeling like your ego is being attacked. So 
it's a paradigm that's very difficult because these are children who feel entitled. They behave like entitled individuals. Then add in in our world today that we have a whole population of a generation of children who are entitled to a great degree. So they feel entitled. And then what I'm actually suggesting and what we know from research is that you actually just move the bat for them. Because every if you could take nine times out of 10 during the day where you don't say a word about the dishes on the counter, or you don't tell them that, you know, oh, how did they do on that test and, and have a reaction that maybe isn't positive, then every single, re- every single reaction seems negative to them. Every single reaction, they cannot handle it. So it's really important to as little as possible correct whatever that is. It could be a hair out of place, whatever it is, because they have become so concerned about being, they've walked on eggshells this whole time. And so now they don't know if they can trust you because you're the protective parent and they've been told in some way or seen you be treated in some way that you're untrustworthy, that you're overly sensitive, that you're all of these things. So one, unconditional positive regard. Two, try your damnedest not to correct as much as possible unless absolutely necessarily and in such a gentle, kind tone. That's really, really important. Three is they need to hear the truth. And so this is an interesting thing because you hear about people all the time, oh, we went through a divorce, but you're not supposed to put children in the middle and they're not supposed to like have to take sides. The problem is your child has been lied to their entire life. They have been coercively controlled by the perpetrator. They have watched all of these behaviors that have happened between the two of you. They don't know what the truth is. They don't have an idea of what the truth is. And so you need to begin to share with them the truth. Now, that doesn't mean say horrible things about their father, but it might mean that's not true. When they tell you something, you can say, that's not true, honey. I'm happy to explain it to you if you'd like me to, but that's not true. So it's not about he's lying, he's awful, he's this. It's just that's not true. Or even in situations like just being able to affirm for them that if they're feeling confused, I understand that you feel confused. It's okay. It's all right. So a constant like reaffirmation for them that their place of confusion and eggshells and all of that, that they're still doing with you because they've learned how to do it their whole life. Frankly, you're probably still doing it around people is it's okay. And the other, the, uh, probably the last hint or the last thing in the toolbox that I would say that people should use is kind of becoming a gray slate with them. Remember that you are a victim. You've had this experience that's horrific, but you need to have armor around you now. And that means that your children need to see you as strong, as able to withstand it because they're waiting for you to fold. That's what this child who has been so traumatized, particularly the ones at the end of the spectrum who are abusive, they're waiting for you to fold and not love them because they don't trust love. And so you have to be, when they tell you that horrible thing, they call you the C word, let's just say, right? You're like, you know what? That wasn't very nice. I'm sorry you had to say that to me. And you walk away. But there's no crying. There's no reprimanding them. There's no, there's none of that. It's all about being very much in a space of safety and a place where they know they can throw anything they want at you. And it doesn't matter. You're going to be still standing there strong and in the same position of unconditional positive regard. That's just like 
so imperative to their development that they can trust that you will be there for them, even if they've done horrible things to you. What's the difference between how you might customize those tools for girls? Yeah, so I don't really think there are any differences. I think for boys and girls, it's the same thing. I mean, obviously, we have to educate people on the topic of toxic masculinity, and that has to happen for both boys and girls, but it happens differently for boys. But no, it's the same. It has to be that same safe, strong place. Let them throw their arrows at you and they just deflect. There's no way to penetrate. So I'm going to sort of use myself as an example in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and You and I can talk offline. <laughs> sure. But if I use myself as an example, one of the struggles that I have is that part of the manifestation of course of control in children is clear delays. I mean, there's certainly this diminishing of the self and dimming of the spirit, the light that is in that person, but it also is manifest in clear to me, in my situation, clear executive functioning disorders. Mm -hmm. And so if there are executive functioning disorders around planning, around critical thinking, around, you know, obviously self-regulation and judgment and all of those things, how do you provide guidance without it seeming as being critical? Because yeah. anytime there's executive um, functioning disorder and you're trying to help them build those skills, you're already saying there's a skill that you would benefit from and you don't have it now. You're already implying that there's a deficiency. Sure, sure. So I would say that that's where texting comes in really handy. That's where lists come in handy. Um, So the less that you are correcting, but you might be sending a reminder, hey, you know, doctor's appointment at two o'clock, because this is the child who's going to tell you, you never told them about the doctor's appointment. This is the child who's going to say, you're always, you know, you're always telling me what to do, but you never told me that we even had this appointment. And how dare you tell me right now we have this, they're going to be angry, right? This is that, I'm not suggesting that's your case, but that's what I've seen is that every single thing that they are overwhelmed with, which is almost everything, <laughs> it's, they have so much anxiety. They're immediately reacting and they are blaming you all of the time. And so what you can do is, you know, you look at your calendar today and you, you're in your head, you're like, okay, don't tomorrow's your, your dentist appointment at two and they're going to get mad at you for reminding them. But then the next day you're going to say, Hey, I'll see you at one 30 to pick you up for your dentist appointment. So it's little things like that. Not, did you remember? Mm-mm, Cause that's a narcissistic injury. So I'm using the word narcissism here. All right. Because what we do know is most of these perpetrators have tendencies towards what we would call characterological issues, personality disorders. And I would even beg to say some of them are psychopath factor one, which is not what what most people think about serial killers. It's actually just they are so good at being so manipulative that they are beyond even a narcissist as what we would know. But what we know about these children is that sometimes They have a manifestation of some of those behaviors. We've already kind of talked about that. And they're abusive. They can even border on abusive and they can become so angry. But that we have to be careful not to give them what's called a narcissistic injury. So 
that is where you can't say, did you remember the doctor's appointment? No, no, no. You just say doctor's appointment at two. That's it. So instead of it's because again, they're so sensitive. They are so prickly about anything that could be perceived as a fault in who they are. And that's all the perpetrator's fault, by the way. (laughs) And he did that. He did that by watching you as the victim be put down in some way, whether overtly or covertly, watching you be put down. And they have learned to have constrained worlds where they are constantly wondering if what they're doing is right or good enough because they watched you. Nothing you did was right or good enough. So they know that. And that's their frame of reference. And so the less that we can overwhelm them, and that's the thing, they get overwhelmed so easily. They cannot have, you said, executive function. You cannot give a child who's experiencing this, you know, a list of three things to do. You can't. You give them one at a time. You know, the room's a mess. Their room is a disaster. You go in, you maybe pick up half of it, and then you ask them to pick up the clothes that have to go in the laundry basket. They don't have to know you've picked up half because if they do, that's a, that's a narcissistic injury that impacts them, that makes them feel less than. They won't even notice it actually, right? I mean, most of the time they don't notice that kind of stuff. So you go in there, you do half of it, and then you ask them to do one thing. So what Child- about her protective parents and protective mothers? who don't have as much access as you're describing in that scenario, or maybe supervised parents, is it just that they, within the context of contact that they have, they have to be careful in the ways that you described? I think so. And that's heartbreaking to me when you think about a mother who has her child, you know, maybe two days a week or for two hours. And how do you, so one of the things we know though, that I think is utterly fascinating is this idea that, you know, the brain does repair, right? We know that, right? And so, and what we know is, so if you take, I like to use this analogy that I, um, or this example that I used, um, that I learned in a training I went to once, but the brain is like a sponge. And imagine the brain, a dry sponge, it's hard. It doesn't really have anything in it. And then what the brain needs is moisture to function correctly, like a sponge. A sponge can't function if it's not wet. And so when we put medication in in the brain, the brain moistens. It actually can function better. Okay, it's useful. When you take away the medication, the brain dries up again. What for most people? Unless you have replaced all of that with positive memories. So the idea between focusing nine out of 10 times good things, you know how you're supposed to tell your child five positive things a day versus one in one negative, maybe it's the same idea. Your child needs as many positive memories as possible. And when I say that, I mean, like literally like you go out and get ice cream with them. They come over and they find their favorite, I don't know, plant. (laughs) you know, they're into plants and they find their favorite plant on the table or flower on the table, just little things to create as many positive memories with you. Because if you only have them for two hours a week, those two hours can be absolutely phenomenal compared to the perpetrator. But you have to actually work at it. And that, by the way, is so hard for a victim. It's so hard because they've lost so much. I mean, if you've been financially decimated, legally decimated, you've lost your child visitation or custody with your child and you know you're turning... The trauma is unbelievable. And then I'm now here I am sitting here telling you, no, you have to be on your best behavior. You have to have armor and not and deflect everything. 
And you also have to create as many positive memories as possible. As many. If they have a favorite little restaurant to go get their favorite pancakes, take them there every single time. I don't care how bad they've been. That doesn't matter. So we obviously this, we started the conversation saying that we're going to talk about systems reform and advocacy. And so everything that you just described is amazing advice, but I think a handful of people (laughs) in my universe is aware of this. Yeah. And so, you know, how do we get other people, other practitioners like yourself to recognize that this is something that's valuable and to want to pass it along? Because if we don't hear this advice, what you're saying is the implication is that there's harm inadvertently that the victim and survivor is committing on the child. Well, right. Cause when you've got a really fresh child, right. And you're really frustrated. They're treating you horribly. You're going to react and you're going to, you're going to punish them. And I'm, I'm suggesting you actually, you actually punish a lot less. That's what I'm suggesting. You highlight every single freaking positive thing because if you don't, you are creating a narcissistic injury and you are actually contributing to those tendencies. And by the way, I speak from experience. So I have had this in my life and I am continuously working on it. And my children are now with me and that's fantastic and I'm lucky, but it's only after long-term hard work. And, And you mentioned earlier about clinical work, I want to say that I was gaslighted by many therapists. Therapists will look at every other issue that a victim is having versus victimization. And that's a whole nother research study that I hope to do. But yes, we need to get the word out about how best to parent these children so that they have the best chance for success in life. That these adverse childhood experiences that instead of being at a volume 10 are now at a volume three or four, and they're going to need therapy probably the rest of their lives and all kinds of supports, but we need this to get out there. We do. This is so important. It's so important. And my heart goes out to anyone who is seeing their child for such a short period of time and trying to navigate this relationship because it is, by the way, compound trauma for the victim. She is being traumatized again by this human being that she adores and loves so much. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, it sounds like also the solution is there's a um, simultaneous need for systems change, but also for individual awareness and education, because Mm -hmm. we're not going to change the system fast enough to prevent, you know, more harm from being inflicted. And so to that extent, you know, your message is so important for not just victims and survivors, but also for other practitioners that what they're doing isn't enough or should be Mm -hmm. done differently. Right. You know, I'll give you an example. If I have a moment, I have a client who's, um, was cutting. She was, uh, 16, 15 years old when she started seeing me and she was cutting and self and uh, was suicidal. And I met the father and the mother who had been divorced for 11 years. And I knew immediately when I met the father, that he was a coercive controller and um, he minimized his daughter's behaviors. And then I met with both parents alone and he said horrible things about the mother. And then I met the mother and heard what she had to tell me. She never knew she was an abuse victim. All those years, she never knew. And slowly but surely, I was able to share with this then 16-year-old the truth 
the truth is, is that your dad loves you the best he can. But the truth is, is that these are the things he did to your mom and you witnessed it and you watched it and your, your reaction to that has been to not love yourself enough, right? To not love yourself enough. And so at a very young age, she was given this really sad, like she loved her dad, you know, this very, but again, slowly and over a period of time. And only when I felt like she was ready, she is the healthiest 17 year old you'd ever meet. She is so in tune with his behavior. She still visits him, but she's able to separate what he says. He'll say quietly, like when she comes over, things like, you know, I'll use Christine. Christine is so mean to you. He has two dogs. Christine is so mean to you. She only comes to visit you every weekend. She doesn't come over all the time. And he'll say it quietly enough for Christine, this child, to hear it. It's his coercive control. It's his power over her. And she now understands it. Isn't that better than her being 25 and not having a clue about what he was doing to her all of that time? She would have been in a confused, gaslit stage forever. The kind of those patterns with future relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. So those are, I believe that children need to hear the truth. And again, in an appropriate, developmentally capable way, and not in a horrifying way where they hear their father's a horrible person that they can love him, but that they also have to create the boundaries because he's never going to create appropriate boundaries. And that depends again on how intensive those characterological issues are. Some children should never be with their abuser ever. Now she was 15. She wasn't five. There's a big difference. Getting back to the Jennifer's law and the legislation that's being proposed, not just in Connecticut, but all over the country, there are different states where part of the reform in domestic violence, besides updating the law to be inclusive of this comprehensive definition of abuse, which is coercive control, Mm -hmm. there's also training that's being proposed on and on and on. Or what use is the training if the people who are engaged in the training don't have this knowledge that (laughs) that you have? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, I mean, even another layer of that is what use is the training if I don't even think I need the training. I'm going to go sit in a training and be on my phone or do whatever. I don't really need this training. They're making me do this training because it's part of a law and I'm, I'm not invested in it. We have to create a level of investment in really seeing these abuses for what they are and how impactful they are. There are so many things we could prevent like a shooter in Colorado if we were able to actually understand the impact that abuses of all sorts have on children, certainly coercive control. I just want to make clear because I, when I mentioned the Colorado shooter, I have this hashtag called connect the dots. And I want to make clear to the listeners that the reason I brought up the mass shootings in this conversation is because mass shooters, the one thing that connects all of them more than anything else is their history of either domestic violence, sexism, or misogyny, um, or all of the above. And to the extent that those are the root causes, and we can actually address the root causes and have the root causes be held accountable, we can actually prevent violent crimes that turn towards society, like mass shootings. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So we've come to the point of the conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions called the Engendered Questionnaire. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? The welfare of children. 
the welfare of children is. What gives you hope? The fact that there's so many people talking about this today, that there is a movement. It's, I wish it was a little bit um, moving a little more quickly, but there is a movement and it gives me hope. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? Yeah, so more of is definitely education. So I run a program at the college where I teach. It's Intimate Partner Violence Sexual Assault Prevention Program, and it's where students learn about healthy relationships and what that looks like. This is college. We need to start this at such a young age where we begin having conversations about safety and well-being. It's a whole nother conversation, but I believe that every single child perpetrator of sexual abuse is coercively controlling those children. So education by far and changing policy and having more feminists in positions of power. We definitely need that and less of, I think, or stop. Like even conversations about myself as a victim, I still have shame. And I have been made to feel ashamed when I testified for Jennifer's Law. I was at 10 a.m. I think that's why I was on the news is because I was the first one. But I also am an educator and an advocate. And I was quite a bit on the news. I did not expect that. I probably would have depersonalized it a little bit. But in any case, there were some moments of shame um, that I felt people kind of looking at me. And it shouldn't be that way. It should be talk about it as much as possible. And if we don't remove the shame for the adult victim, then we are never going to get rid of the narcissistic injury that could be an underlying manifestation of the trauma that children have. Thank you, Christine. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And I hope that we can move things forward in this community through our conversation as a start. Thank you so much for having me, Terry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.